Welcome back, everyone. We're back this week. We're going to be looking at the structure of the apocalypse. And I entitled this, I didn't, I, I sometimes struggle with titles. It's the hardest thing in your lecture to put together, but it's a study in how literary connections can help inform our exegesis of Revelation. What I hope tonight that happens, I hope tonight you're going to see a lot of connections in the book of Revelation and how it's structured together and connections that you've never seen before that better enable you to interpret it. And we're also going to use some of the connections to refute the pre-wrath position and show the, the greater plausibility of the pre-trib position. And also even we're going to take a little bit of a whack at the post-tribbers at the end because I think some of these connections help disprove their position as well. So with that, let me uh, pray. And again, these debates between the pre-trib, the pre-wrath, and the post-trib, they're all um, within the faith. We're brothers in Christ and sisters. And these are people with, uh, we can disagree with and yet still remain close to one another and say, you know what, we believe in the same promises and we're going to the same place. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that through faith in Christ we have these great promises that the best is yet to come, that we're going to be living in resurrected bodies in a millennial kingdom and then one day dwell with you forever, singing your praises and worshiping you, living a purposeful existence and um, lives with one another in the new Jerusalem. We thank you for these things. Lord, I ask that you would help uh, make these difficult concepts clear and help us think well upon the book of Revelation so that we may understand it in a greater way to be conformed to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first thing I want to talk about is the major sections of Revelation. I want to talk about, this is kind of the 10,000-foot view And what's interesting is throughout the interpretation of the book of Revelation, especially within the 20th century and now on into the 21st century, the majority of scholars can't even agree on how many sections there are to the book of Revelation. And I say that not to make us despair, but to me this is an indictment against scholarship because I think the sections, that is the major sections in the book of Revelation, are actually quite evident. Okay, But let me just show you some of the different takes on how Revelation is structured, and I'm going to show you some of the different scholarship. There's a man named R.J. Lonertz, and he actually says that the book of Revelation is organized around seven major sections. We have another man named J.M. Ford. He's another scholar who said, Revelation is composed of six series of six. Okay. We had another man, another scholar in the 20th century said, this is K.A. Strand, that the book of Revelation is comprised of eight basic visions. Not to be outdone, J.P. Charlier, he said that the book of Revelation is composed of five septenary patterns. And by the way, this is a phrase that just means five patterns of seven. Okay. Now, again, a lot of this disparity and all the different views, sometimes you think, well, can anybody really know how it's structured? And I think we can. I actually think this is, um, yeah, Tom. Yeah, well, you know what, Tom, what I'm going to lay out is that I think that all these guys have been overthinking it. And this is a case where I think scholarship, and let me just share a little insight real quick. A lot of people that go on to get their PhDs in, in theology, do you realize that when they give their doctoral dissertation, they have to be adding to the understanding of theology, and so they're encouraged to come up with novelty. And this is something that I would critique to a certain degree because you and I believe in the faith once for all handed down to the saints, 
And so you and I aren't to come up with novelty, but rather to come up what, to, with what is actually in the text. Okay, and I think this is a case where men are coming up with novelty for the sake of novelty. So I'm going to be bold and just say, I think there's a straightforward proposal seen in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 19, where we see the book of Revelation is actually laid out in three units. The first section is simply the things that were, and that's chapters 1, 9 through 20. Number two, it's the things that are, and those are from chapters 2 all the way to chapters 3, 22, and then finally the things that are to come, chapters 4 all the way through 22. Now, some scholars will say that this is simplistic. And I would say it's not simplistic, it is simple. Simplistic has the connotation that it is reduced beyond what it should, but that's not the case. That is the, these are the very words that John has used. And I think it behooves us to go with the, the way the author has laid out the book, not to go with scholarship or ourselves who come up with ingenious methods to the way we think the book of Revelation is structured. With that, let me just show you a man who says this very thing as he critiques the contemporary scholarship. A man named David L. Barr, in 1984, he wrote a piece called The Apocalypse as a Symbolic Transformation of the World, a Literary Analysis. Now, I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but I appreciate that he's trying to wrestle with how John structured it. Listen to what he says. Many commentators cannot resist numbering one or two other sequences of seven, which John apparently overlooked. (laughs) Before one proceeds to help John in this way, the critic ought to ask why John chose not to number them. Then the critic ought to try to come to terms with John's own organization. And then he goes on to say, we must read his work. And that's exactly right. And friends, that's why it's very simple and straightforward. Revelation 119 lays out, the book of Revelation is about the kingdom of God coming. It's about the things that were, the things that are, and the things that are about to come. And so from Revelation chapter 4 all the way through 22, 5, it's about the things that are to come. And that is why I consider myself a futurist. That is, those sections are about things that are still in our future, still future to the church age. Okay. Now, the debate surrounding the structure of Revelation has to do with whether the book of Revelation is progressive and chronological or whether it stresses recapitulation. And to be honest with you, when I first studied as a Christian the book of Revelation, I was actually enticed by recapitulation. I'm going to show you the differences here. But now I'm convinced that, in fact, it is chronological. Let me show you the differences. And for the sake of my diagram that I've got here, I want you to see that what I'm getting at in this diagram is this is the seven-year tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week, starting here and ending here. Okay, And you'll understand why I have to point that out. First of all, I want to talk about the chronological or also called the progressive view. And this is the idea that the seals would start at the very beginning of the tribulation. That's why I have seals lined up under there. And they would just progress chronologically one moment after another until you get to the trumpets, and then finally you would get to the bowls, and then you would be done with the seven-year tribulation. Okay. Later on this evening, I'm going to be making the case that actually, technically, the seventh bowl will extend all the way to Revelation 22.5, and I'll be showing you why. And um, that doesn't create any problems for us, but I'll show you exegetically why that is the case. But nonetheless, I'm just showing you that this would be the chronological or progressive view. The other view has been the idea of recapitulation. And that is the view that, for instance, the seals, they would start in the beginning of the seven years of tribulation. Then they would extend all the way to the end. 
And then it starts over. The trumpets, again, would recapitulate and go over the same material. They would just add different insights. So they'd be giving you different material or adding color to what you already know, but it would be covering the same period of time. Okay, so the trumpets would be recapitulating the same time period. And then, of course, the bowls would too. The bowls would start here, and then they would end here. So here's the point, friends, is I think the evidence for the chronological development of the book of Revelation is very clear. Now, let me give you some of the evidence. And I wrote down, these are some observations that I saw that support the idea that the book of Revelation is chronological or progressive and starts with the seals and ends with the bowls. Okay? Number one, you may want to write these down because I didn't have room to put them on here, but number one, the first line of evidence that the book of Revelation is chronological is that the fourth seal, you see a quarter of the earth perish, that is the population, but by the time you get to the sixth trumpet, you see a third of the earth perish. And so the point being is there's greater distress as the tribulation period progresses. And that's evidence that it in fact is chronological and that the same thing Uh, that the seals, trumpets, and bulls aren't just recapitulating the same thing. Also, number two, this is the second line of reasoning that the book of Revelation is chronological. The text explicitly states, for instance, that the first woe in Revelation 8.12 must finish before the second woe. And then in Revelation 11.14, the second woe must start before the third woe. And so you see this progression within the woes. Uh, The third line of reasoning is that the fifth trumpet that we see um, in the trumpet judgments, obviously, has a definite time period. It's five months. Okay, so obviously there's chronological time going by in these judgments. Okay, the fourth line of reasoning is that the numbers themselves, they're sequential. A second grader understands that four comes after three. Okay, that's the way John structured this. The fifth line of reasoning is the delay in the four winds at the sixth seal. Remember, the angels that are in control of the four winds are not to pour those winds out upon the earth until the 144,000 are sealed. And so that's the element of progression. You can't do this until this. Okay, again, there's chronological time. And then finally, Revelation 6.11. I'm going to go over this quite a bit this evening, but Revelation 6.11, it's the fifth seal martyrs crying out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And in verse 11, the answer comes, Yet a little while, or literally, yet a small time. Well, that answer finally comes. There's a correlation in the Greek in Revelation 10:6 at the seventh trumpet where it says there will be no longer any time or any delay. So Revelation 6:11, there's a delay. Revelation 10:6, there's no longer any delay. So again, why? Well, there's progression. They finally gotten to the point where God will pour out all of his judgment. So all of these clues, and there's many, many, many more, but these prove that there is chronological progression. And the major core of the book of Revelation surrounds the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Okay, that's the core. But then what we have is we're going to have, in between the structure of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, you're going to have areas of recapitulation where you will get what are called interludes. And that actually ends up adding more information and I'll be showing you this later here but the other thing I want to point out before we get there is that the structure of the whole book of Revelation can be said to be an answer in built off of Daniel chapter 2 and not just so says Eric Dalma but so says a man named Greg Beale who has written a great book on the book of um, a great commentary in the book of Revelation and in fact he goes so far as to say that Daniel 228 is in fact the title 
the, the, the phrase here, the things that must take place, is in some sense the title of the book of Revelation. Okay? So let me read to you Daniel 2.28. And remember, the context here is that Daniel had seen this dream and he could, in fact, interpret it for Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel says, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar what must take place in the last days. So this Greek phrase literally means the things which, is, which are necessary or which must take place. And what's interesting is Bob taught me how to use my Logos software, and he taught me how to type this into a search engine, the whole phrase, right? And what happens, I, it's really neat, there's three passages that come up. In other words, from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, when you put that phrase in there, in your search engine from Daniel 2.28 in the Septuagint, because it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you have three passages that will come up, and they form the seams of Revelation. It's Revelation 1.1, uses the very same phrase. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. He's using the identical words here, the identical phrase. And remember, what is the book of Revelation ultimately about? It's about the coming kingdom and its king. And what is Daniel chapter 2 all about? It's the four successive kingdoms. It's the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and then those are all destroyed. Remember the statue with the golden head? That was Babylon and so forth. Well, that ends up being destroyed by whose kingdom? The Messiah's. And so John is finally answering how this kingdom comes about. So interestingly enough, then when we get to Revelation chapter 4.1, right when we go into the throne room, when we're progressing into the things that are going to come upon the world, that is, things that are still in our future, we see another seam, and again, we have this phrase. Uh, John was said to, the instruction was, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Again, this very same phrase that we see here. And then finally, remember, the things that are to take place, all the future events last until Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. And then after that, there's an instruction for the people of God to remember that these things are going to come quickly. And that's where we pick it up in Revelation 22.6 and we see the same phrase again. It says, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So in some sense, this phrase from Daniel 2.28 forms the seams in Revelation in the threefold division that we see that are the things that were the things that are and the things that are yet to come. So very, very neat indeed. So again, very much tied to Daniel chapter 2. The other thing I want to point out here is the storm theophany structure. And a theophany is anywhere, or is an event where God demonstrates who he is in a physical manifestation. And what you're going to see is that there's this storm theophany where you have lightning and peals of thunder, and it occurs right away in Revelation 4 or 5 before the seal judgments. We're in the throne room here. And it says, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Well, interestingly enough, when you get to the seventh seal, Revelation 8, 5, it says, then the angel took the censer and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So here you're seeing from the throne room the same thunder and lightning that you saw in Revelation 4, 5. Well, then you get to the seventh trumpet. Revelation 11:19, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Again, you're in the throne room. And then you get to Revelation 16:18, which is the seventh bowl, and again you're in the throne room, and it says, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, 
and there was a great earthquake. Now this earthquake, by the way, is such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. So this is the earthquake that is the coup de grace, the earthquake par excellence. This is the one that I think happens at the very end. And again, this shows progression. But notice, every time you come to the seventh, either it be the seal, the trumpet, or the bowl, you have this storm theophany. Okay, very interesting. Now, where did this, again, where, did this, the, where does the lightning and the thunder come from? Well, it comes out from the throne. And one of the important things that I gather from this theme is that God is in control of the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls. Why? Because the original flashing of lightning and the sound of the peals of thunder all come from the throne as well. So in other words, the pre-wrath people are claiming that six of these seals are in fact not the wrath of God. And what I'm saying is that I think the very notion that the flashes of lightning and the sounds and the peals of thunder, they came from the throne in Revelation 4 or 5, and the seventh seal, seventh trumpet, and seventh bowl all have the same event going on, shows us that these things are coming from God. Who owns these judgments? God does. That's where they're proceeding. They're proceeding from the throne room. So I think it behooves us to, to say that God is in control of all these judgments. This is not the judgment of Satan. Yes, Satan is being used by God, but God is sovereign over him, and therefore, ultimately, it's his wrath at the end of the day. So now let me move on now, and I'm going to show you the progression of Revelation chapter 6 through 22. And the reason why I'm going to focus on chapter 6 through 22 is because chapter 6 is where the seal judgments start. And in my opinion, that is where we have the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. Okay? So we've moved out of the throne room, and now the seals are being opened. So here's how it's structured. Revelation chapter 6, we see the first six seals. And remember that Jesus called this the beginning of birth pains. Remember that in Matthew 24, 8? And the description that he gives is almost identical of what we see in the first six seals. Okay? Now remember, when Jesus says these are the beginning of birth pains, and by the way, even the pre-wrath proponents agree to that, but remember when Jesus calls them birth pains, he's using that Greek term Odin, which we saw that in the Old Testament is synonymous with the day of the Lord. Well, remember, Paul uses that very same term when he's talking about the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, when he says that while they're saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them like birth pains, right? So what is he doing? He's talking about that the day of the Lord comes suddenly and it comes like birth pains. So therefore, we should conclude that because Jesus links the first six seals to birth pains, and Paul links the birth pangs to the beginning of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord starts with the first six seals, right? Now, right after the six seals, we come to an interlude. And you're going to see this after the six uh, trumpets as well. You come to an interlude in Revelation chapter 7 where you have the sealing of the 144,000 and you have the martyrs. Now, very interesting. I'm going to show you a connection here. In Revelation 6.17, at the sixth seal, there's a question that's asked, by those who dwell upon the earth who are receiving God's wrath, they ask this question. They say, For the great day of their wrath has come, that is the Lamb and the Father, and who is able to stand? Revelation 7 answers the question, and it's an interlude. It answers the question, well, this is who can stand. The 144,000 that are sealed by God, they can stand. And the martyrs, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ to the point even unto death, they can stand. And so Revelation 7 is an interlude that answers that question. Okay, Now, 
And I'm going to show you some other interesting connections again between Revelation 6 and later on in Revelation, but we'll, we'll come to those. Now we come to the seventh seal. And any time you come to a seventh seal, remember we're in the throne room because that's where we have the peals of uh, thunder and the lightning. But it's also the opening of the next set of judgments. This would be, of course, the trumpets. And we see that in Revelation 8, 1 through 6. And then we get to the trumpets again, Revelation 8, 7 through 9. And here, friends, we see cosmic upheaval. This is where God takes a third of just about everything, a third of our water, a third of uh, grass. He kills a third of the world's population. The world is in tremendous upheaval. By the sixth trumpet, remember, the sun, moon, and stars are affected again, just like they were at the sixth seal. Okay, And then, interestingly enough, we have another interlude. So do you see there's a structure here. You have the six seals interlude, six trumpets interlude. Okay, And now we come to Revelation 10, 11 through 14, and it's discussing the little book, which is really synonymous with the little book that Ezekiel is forced to eat. Now John is forced to eat this little book, and it's both bitter and sweet. It's bitter in the sense that judgment comes upon the world, but it's also sweet that God wins in the end and those who have trusted in him will reign victoriously. And then we also see the discussion about the two witnesses. So that's in the interlude. And again, every time you come to an interlude, it's giving you more information. It's kind of like a pause. You know, or um, what was the show where they used to say, meanwhile, back at the ranch. <laughs> I don't even know what show that was. Was that anybody know? But anyway, big, big, big okay, that, okay, so that was the show. But it's, so it's a, it's a pause, and it gives you more information of what's going on. So that's how those interludes work. Now we come again to the seventh trumpet. That opens up, sure enough, to the bowl judgments in Revelation 11:15 through 19. And you're going to see this is what's called a proleptic statement. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a proleptic statement because it is so assured that God will one day reign that it's being stated early because at the completion of the bowl judgments, God reigns. Okay, But again, where are we? Well, if we're at the seventh of something, we're in the throne room. And again, you'll see the lightning and the peals of thunder. So you can see how this is structured. Six seals, interlude. Six trumpets, interlude. Um, every time you're at the seventh, you're in the throne room. So very cool indeed, I think. Very, very interesting. So now we move on, however, and we see there's another interlude in Revelation chapter 12 through 14 that discusses Israel. Remember, Israel is referred to, remember, the woman with child. And it, it actually goes back in time and it recounts Israel and her struggle for survival. Then it brings you to the present day, into the Great Tribulation period. And this is the introduction to the two beasts. One comes, one of the beasts, remember the Antichrist, he comes from the sea, and the false prophet comes out of the earth, right? And then again, there's this reference to the 144,000, so that provides another interlude. And then we come to the six bowls. Uh, Revelation 15 and then 16 through 16. Now, I call this the Exodus slash Armageddon because you're going to see a lot of the judgments that happened at Exodus happen again. And God is purposely showing that he's about to bring his people out again to salvation, just like he did with the Israelites. Okay, In fact, Song of Moses, a similar one, is kind of sung. And then you see the preparation for the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 6, 16, 16, and that's the sixth, um, the sixth bowl. Okay, And so all the enemies of God of the the nations are brought through the river Euphrates and they're all brought to surround Israel at that time. Well, then, of course, it opens to the seventh bowl. And what do you know? We're in the throne room again, right? 
And that's Revelation 16, 17 through 21. And now it changes because we have run the course. In other words, the seventh bowl doesn't open to another set of judgments because that's it, right? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you that this seventh bowl, remember six of the bowls have already gone, the seventh bowl opens up, and again, it doesn't open to anything else other than it culminates and finishes God's judgment. And I'm going to be making the case before you that the seventh bowl goes all the way into Revelation 22.5. And I'm indebted to a man named Robert Thomas for this. I was a little skeptical when he started making these claims, but the more I've read and the more I've studied, I think he's right. I'm going to be showing you the evidence. So let me just show you how the seventh bowl lays out. The seventh bowl, the first portion of it, it's in three portions. The first portion is seen from Revelation 16:17 through 19:10. It has to do with the fall of Babylon. And so Babylon, as you're going to see later, is contrasted with the New Jerusalem. Those who, who inhabit Babylon hate God and are idolaters. Those who, who inhabit the New Jerusalem love God and are the redeemed and are faithful. And so there's going to be this great contrast between the two. The second portion is Revelation 19.11. Of course, that's where Jesus comes to fight. And I think this corresponds nicely to Zechariah 14 where the, the Messiah fights as he does in a day of battle. And this extends to Revelation 20.15 where you have the white throne judgment where all those whose names were not found written in the book of life, a lamb's book of life, were thrown into the lake of fire. And so these are the final battles and judgments. And then finally, the third section is uh, Revelation 21 through 22.5, the new creation and the new Jerusalem. So what God has destroyed, now he recreates and he brings us back to perfection. What was lost in Genesis in the garden, he brings us back there and it's all his doing. Okay, And that culminates the seventh bowl. Now, let me give you the evidence for an extended seventh bowl because you're probably a little skeptical as I was. And let me just show you, um, I think I have six strands of evidence. Number one, there's a phrase in Revelation 16, 17 at the very beginning of the seventh bowl. And the phrase is, it is done. And that phrase is about the decree of God related to his judgments. It is done. He has decreed it and it is done. And it is a proleptic statement and it looks forward to Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, where now this looks backward saying they are done. And notice the plural. Now, both of these phrases, they have a root of ginemai, which means to come about or to be accomplished. Okay? So what's interesting is the seventh bowl, it is initiated by saying it is done. The decree of God for these judgments, it's done. Yet, they're not fully completed. That is, all the judgments associated with the seventh bowl until in Revelation 21.6, and that looks backwards saying they are done. Okay? And so the same terminology is used, and it shows that, yes, the seventh bowl extends at least out to Revelation 21.6. Now, this is important for the rest of our theology biblically, and here's why. Remember in 2 Peter 3.10, Peter links the day of the Lord, and he extends, remember the broad day of the Lord? He extends it outward even into the new creation. Remember that? And we see that evidence here in 2 Peter 3.10 where he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And that's exactly what Paul was saying in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, that it comes suddenly. But notice he skips now way later into the new creation. He says, in which the heavens will pass away. Well, that doesn't happen until after Revelation chapter 20, and then you come to the new heavens and the new Jerusalem and so forth. Okay? So in other words, the day of the Lord, according to Peter, extends to the new creation. And so with this evidence of an extended seventh bowl, remember the seventh bowl has to do with what? 
the wrath of God. And what's that associated with? Well, the day of the Lord. And so it's very, it, it ties in very nicely with the rest of Scripture. Well, let me keep rolling here. Number two, another piece of evidence here for an extended seventh bowl. One of the seven angels, he keeps talking. It's a seventh angel and then one of the seven angels. So, for instance, in Revelation 16, 17, it says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl. Okay, fair enough. But then we move forward still in the seventh bowl, Revelation 17, 1. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came. Well, interestingly enough, we see the same terminology used in Revelation 21.9. Notice it's almost identical. Then one of the seven angels, just like we have here, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke. So again, friends, we see that the seventh bowl must last at least until Revelation 21.9. So that extends it outward. In, 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 so I always thought it was done in Revelation 19. That's what I always I always thought. But now I'm, I'm seeing more and more evidence that, no, the seventh bowl extends all the way to the new creation. We see evidence in the Battle of Armageddon. Remember, the sixth bowl, when you saw the sixth bowl in Revelation 16, that was merely preparing the earth for the battle. So the battle doesn't actually begin until the seventh bowl. Okay? Well, in the seventh bowl, the Battle of Armageddon does not culminate until Revelation 19, 17 through 21. Because remember, Jesus comes, Revelation 19, 11, and he destroys his enemies in that section. And so by verse 21 of Revelation 19, the battle of Armageddon culminates. Okay, So it was set up in the sixth bowl, but it certainly doesn't culminate until chapter 19 in the seventh bowl. So we know the seventh bowl must extend at least till here. And we see more evidence of this because the assignment of the beast to the lake of fire happens here in 1920, and that would certainly be part of God's wrath. Okay, so certainly God's wrath isn't complete until the beast and Satan and then also unbelievers are put into the lake of fire. And so we see also the evidence of the finality of the seven bowls of judgment. We see this in Revelation 15.1 where it's a pronouncement about what is going to be accomplished by the bowl judgments, okay? It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had the seven plagues, which are the last. Okay, so they're the last. And because in them the wrath of God is finished. Well, friends, think about it. Certainly God's wrath isn't finished until he throws Satan into the lake of fire, and that would therefore extend the seventh bowl out to at least Revelation 20, verse 10. And then in Revelation 20, 15, Unbelievers, all those whose names were not found written in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire. Okay? And so the judgment goes at least until then. All right? And then finally, number, or not finally, I guess I have one more after this. Number five, the introductory announcement of the seventh bowl. Notice this introductory announcement in Revelation 16.20. It's talking about this judgment, and every island fled away. This is from the presence of God, and the mountains were not found. Well, you see that identical phrase, friends, in Revelation 20, verse 11, where it says, from whose presence, and remember, these are the unbelievers who are before the white throne judgment. It says, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and a place was not found for them. So again, fled away, not found, fled away, not found. Those are identical passages or identical words, I should say, in the Greek. And so again, we have this strong correlation that the seventh bowl extends into Revelation 20. And then we have number six. We have a parallel and a contrast. The parallel is the language with the language referring to Babylon and the New Jerusalem, but there's also a contrast between Babylon and New Jerusalem. Let me explain. 
In Revelation 17.1, again, we're clearly in the seventh bowl. It says this, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now remember, that great harlot, friends, is Babylon. And it is Babylon, the religious organization that is opposed to everything of God. Okay, And so there's this religious aspect of Babylon, but there's also a political aspect of Babylon. But those who make up Babylon are comprised of idolaters and the unregenerate. I'm going to show you the contrast now in Revelation 21.9 with Jerusalem, but notice the language is identical. It says, Then one of the seven angels, notice, then one of the seven angels up here, who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so, friends, where is the great harlot that is Babylon is comprised of those who are opposed against God, those who are idolaters. The bride that is the new Jerusalem is comprised of those who are faithful. Okay, And again, showing that what was started in the seventh bowl actually culminates later in Revelation chapter 21.9. And, and we actually see more similarities. Revelation 17.3, for instance, says, And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Again, talking about this false religious system that's opposed to the things of God. But then notice the similarity in the language. Revelation 21.10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Again, this contrast between unfaithful Babylon and the new Jerusalem that is, in fact, faithful. Okay, so again, friends, the evidence I think is clear that in fact the seventh bowl extends all the way into the new creation, and that corresponds again with what we know about the day of the Lord according to Second Peter three ten, that the day of the Lord comes like a thief; it's unexpected. That's when the seventieth week breaks out. But the day of the Lord, that is the broad day, extends all the way through the millennial kingdom. Okay, now we're going to show it. I'm going to kind of bring that seventh bowl idea in its importance to our understanding of the beginning of God's wrath and into this discussion and how long God's wrath goes for. But I want to talk again about the timing of God's wrath. And specifically, there's been a lot of debate about the fifth seal in Revelation chapter 6. And the debate is this. The pre-wrath side typically maintains that these martyrs are crying out for the beginning of God's wrath. In other words, they use this passage that I'm going to read you to try to prove the notion that God's wrath has not yet occurred, okay? Because the martyrs are crying out, how long, O Lord, will you refrain from judging, okay? And so their idea was that this proves that the wrath of God has not yet come. But I'm going to prove to you that they're actually, I'm going to show you a connection that will disprove that, okay? So let me read the passage and I'll make some comments. Fifth seal, Revelation 6, 9 through 11. John says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. The first thing I want to point out here is the phrase, had been slain. This is in the perfect tense. And why that's important is there's people like Marv Rosenthal and other pre-wrath scholars claim 
that it is only at the fifth seal where the believers in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period start being martyred, okay? Well, what's interesting is the perfect tense means something that had happened in the past, it was perfectly completed, and its effect is still with us today. And why that's important is it it explains that these people were under the uh, altar, those who had been killed, they they must have been killed prior to the fifth seal, okay? So they're certainly probably still being killed now uh, during the fifth seal, but they were killed prior to that. Okay, so therefore we know that the killing is even earlier than that. Now, focus on this bolded section, which is the cry of the saints for judgment. They say, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Now, notice this phrase is judging. And there's a catch-22, I think, that pre-wrath finds itself in, in the sense where they will say to a pre-trib proponent, How can you claim that there's the wrath of God in the first six seals? After all, you don't see the term wrath. Well, I'm going to turn that now and say, well, why would you say that in this section the saints are asking for God to send his wrath upon the world because he doesn't use the term wrath? Okay, he's using the term judging. Are you with me? Now, I'm being a little funny because, in other words, just because a word isn't used doesn't mean there isn't wrath. Okay, so the word wrath doesn't occur in the first five seals, but I think the concept is there. Even though judging isn't the word wrath, I think it's the idea is there. But the point is, this has to do with when judging will culminate. When does the judgment ultimately culminate? Well, at the white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. That's when these people will be satisfied, is when their tormentors will be cast in the eternal lake of fire. So this phrase, friends, has nothing to do with when it will begin, per se, It has to do with when God will turn up the heat, so to speak, and end up taking his judgment to the level where these people are going to be cast in the lake of fire. Now, the most important thing in this whole passage is this little phrase, a little while longer. In the Greek, it's eti, kronon, mikron. Literally, yet a small time. Okay? Now, what I'm going to show you is that there's a link between this and Revelation 10.6. But before I get into that, let me just show you. I'm going to putting up Revelation 6:11, this phrase that we're dealing with, and I'm going to show you what Ryan says about it in his book, The Parable of the Fig Tree. He says, God's wrath upon the world has not begun at this time, as the martyrs are asking how long until the sovereign Lord deals out retribution. The divine response is that once the last martyr gives his life, the Lord will begin his systematic fiery wrath. Now, what's interesting is, again, let me just show you why Ryan is wrong. And again, it's a good thought. I think he's thinking the right way. He's trying to wrestle with timing. But here's where I think he gets it wrong. Notice this phrase, a little while longer. Again, it literally means, yet a small time. Almost the exact phrase, it's it's reference to chronos, the the reference to time. Remember in, in Greek, there's chronos, that is time chronologically. And then you have kairos, that is an epic something monumental, an event, okay? Well, this is chronos. It's talking about that kind of time. Well, there's a connection between that and Revelation 10.6, where the angel says this. He says, The angel swore by him, that is God, of course, who lives forever and ever, that there will be, and literally it's no longer time, okay? So what's set up in Revelation 6.11 is finally answered in Revelation 10.6. Now there will no longer be time. It's done, okay? But yet we've been in judgment the whole time. But what's about to break forth in Revelation 10.6 
It's the seventh trumpet. And what happens when the seventh trumpet opens? You have the seven bowls. And what happens after the seven bowls? Well, the wrath of God is completed. Okay? So what's interesting, follow along now. He goes, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, remember he's the one who pours out the seventh bowl, it says, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. In other words, the wrath of God is finished. And remember, it extends all the way to Revelation 22.5. Because in Revelation 20.15, that's when all those whose names were not found in the Lamb's Book of Life were cast into the lake of fire. So the point is, is the question, notice the question Ryan is trying to answer from this. He's asking, when will it begin? But what is it actually answering here? In other words, if Revelation 6.11, this phrase and this phrase in Revelation 10.6 are linked, then the real question is, when is it finished? And so he's asking, in some sense, the wrong question. You see what I'm saying? Because the wrath of God has always been there. What the believers are actually asking is, when are you going to judge them? When are you really going to put your foot on them? When are you going to throw them into the lake of fire and they're going to get everything they deserve for picking on your people? That's what they're asking. And so God has been pouring out his judgment the whole time in the world, and he gets progressively worse and worse and worse. And the worst thing anybody can ever partake in is being thrown into the eternal lake of fire. That is the worst. And that happens in Revelation 20.15. And so again, what's expected in Revelation 6.11 is finally answered in Revelation 10.6. And that's a connection, I think, that the pre-wrath movement has missed. Okay, so let me just prove it to you from the Greek. Revelation 6.11, eti kronon mikron. Again, that's yet a small time. Okay, and I won't bore you with the rest. Uh, well, this is until, and then your subjects are down here. Also, your fellow ser- their fellow servants and their brothers will be fulfilled or will be brought in. That's how it reads. But the, the connection I want you to see is between this phrase here, yet a little time or yet a little delay, you could read it either way, and Revelation 10.6. Again, chronos, time. So literally, it's there will be no longer time. Okay, remember, word order means nothing in Greek. But the, the connection here is this talking about the time, chronos, right? And so what's set up again in Revelation 6.11 is answered here. There will no longer be time or delay. So there will be a little delay here, and then it's finally answered. There will no longer be delay. That's the idea. So let me show you why this is significant again. The pre-wrath rapture, remember, happens between the 6th and 7th seal, and then they pour out their wrath. The pre-wrath view believes that the wrath comes at the seventh seal. So not until the seventh seal is there the wrath of God, right? Well, remember the question here, when will these things be? And yet still a small time. Well, it's finally answered. There will no longer be delay in Revelation 10.6, but that happens at the seventh trumpet, okay? And so the reason why the answer is given at the seventh trumpet is because that opens up to the bulls, And when the bowls are completed, the wrath of God is completed. So again, the issue isn't when does the wrath of God begin, is when does the wrath of God culminate and complete so that the martyrs are satisfied that God has in fact judged them and avenged them or avenged their blood. That's the idea. And remember, that's why the bowls extend all the way through until Revelation 22.5. One thing I want to talk about while I'm on this slide is some have objected to the idea of the seventh bowl extending outward because then they think that it destroys the imagery of the 70th week, and it does not. And here's why. Remember, at the end of the 70th week, the beautiful thing is that Jesus comes and he's bodily with his people and he has now established the kingdom of Israel and his people are entirely secure. And so at the end of the 70th week, the people of God no longer have to worry. Why? Well, Jesus is with them. 
and he has established the kingdom. He's given it to Israel. And of course, by believers in Jesus Christ, that's the only way you can be part of the kingdom, whether Jew or Gentile. Okay? So that's the good news. But now that doesn't mean that Jesus is done with his judgment, obviously, because we know that even after the millennial kingdom, he enters into the white throne judgment. Okay? So again, don't think that the seventh bowl extending outward ruins the imagery of the 70th week. It does not. Okay, now we see, again, that the wrath begins, friends, at the beginning of the 70th week. And I just want to lay out this evidence for you again. This is a little bit of a review, but um, we need to get into it. Again, the sixth seal, between the sixth and the seventh seals, where pre-wrath believes the rapture happens. So let me read to you the sixth seal, and I'm going to make a point here. Revelation 6.12 says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. Now remember, the pre-wrath view was saying that the sun and the moon and the stars when they're affected, that is prior to Jesus' coming. And they link that to the rapture, which they believe is found in Matthew 24, uh, 29 through 30, okay, and into 31. Well, remember, the problem with that is the pre-wrath view also believes that the sixth seal is part of the Great Tribulation. Okay, is everybody with me? Well, remember in Matthew 24, 29, it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. So if this is during the Great Tribulation and the sun, moon, and stars are darkened, but yet in Matthew 24, 29, it's after the Tribulation. That's when the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. Are you with me? So in other words, the sun, moon, and stars that are darkened here can't be the same as here. And in fact, at the sixth trumpet, the sun, moon, and stars are affected again. So the point is at the sixth seal, the sun, moon, and stars are affected. At the sixth trumpet, the sun, moon, and stars are affected And then at the coming of the Lord, at the end of the 70th week, the sun, moon, and stars are affected again, okay? Now, the reason why I'm pointing this out is notice when we get to Revelation 6, 15 through 17, there's just a great debate because this is at the sixth seal and the debate is when does the wrath of God begin? Is it after the sixth seal or is it during the sixth seal and prior? If we can prove that the wrath of God happens at least by the sixth seal, and I believe it's much earlier, then we can disprove the pre-wrath view because you would have the wrath of God during the Great Tribulation where they say there can be no wrath of God. Are you with me? So let me read to you Revelation 6, 15 through 17, and I'll show you what the debate is about. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and mountains, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of God. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And so, friends, the debate really focuses in on, between the pre-wrath and the pre-trib proponents, as to when the wrath occurs on this phrase, their wrath has come. And that phrase, has come, is elfin. It's an, um, an aorist indicative of Erkamai. And the debate is, does it mean that the wrath has already occurred? And by the way, that's normally how an heiress indicative functions. Or does it mean, like a proleptic statement, that the wrath is about to come? It's an announcement. The wrath is about to come. Well, what I'm going to make the case, again, all you have to do is prove that it's present by the sixth seal because that's during the Great Tribulation. And according to the pre-wrath view, they say there can be no wrath during the Great Tribulation. So let me show you some of the clues. First of all, notice it says, hide us. And they're asking to be presently hidden from, what? The presence of him who sits on the throne and from 
the wrath of the Lamb. Why? Because it's present. It's there. Okay? And remember, the sixth seal is part of the Great Tribulation. Therefore, there must be wrath during the Great Tribulation. And also, I'm going to prove to you that the normal way we should understand an aorist indicative is that it refers to things happening in the past. The other thing I'm going to be pointing out is this phrase, is able, is in the present tense. In other words, John isn't saying, who will be able to stand when that wrath comes? He's saying, who is able to stand? Why? Well, because the wrath is there. The wrath is present. And therefore, I think, again, the pre-wrath view doesn't make sense because it, it says that there cannot be wrath at that time, only at the seventh seal onward. Okay? So, and I'm going to show you how some of our connections that we've made will come into play. Revelation 6.17, again, it says their wrath has come. And again, the, what we're debating about is how is Elthin, the aorist active indicative, how should it be understood? And let me just show you some scholars. For instance, this Michael Heiser, by the way, we have one of his articles listed up at our Twin City Fellowship under references. It's a great article, but listen to what he says about it. He says, in the indicative mood, the aorist usually denotes past time. Well, this is in the indicative. In fact, friends, in order for us to claim that this aorist indicative, talking about the wrath has come, if we're going to claim that it's not referring to things that happened in the past, we have to have a darn good reason. And I don't think we have any. What exegetical clues do we have that the wrath has not already been present? In fact, I'll show you that we have really good clues that the wrath already has been present. Okay? What's more, Daniel Wallace says, in the indicative, the aorist usually indicates past time with reference to the time of speaking. In my paper, where I critique the pre-wrath view, I get into the 12 occurrences of Elphin, this very form, and I show how it's used throughout the book of Revelation. And every single occurrence, I prove that it either happens in the past or is contemporaneous with what's going on. Okay? Again, it has nothing to do with what's about to break forth and happen. Okay? Um, what's more, now this is a very important idea. Listen to what Robert Thomas, again, a scholar I have great respect for, listen to what he says, very insightful. He says, the sixth seal cannot be anticipatory of the great day of wrath. Now remember, that's the pre-wrath view. That has come means it will come. It's about to come upon the scene. That is the wrath of God. Well, listen to what Thomas says. He says, the sixth seal cannot be anticipatory of the great day of wrath about to happen because it would have the earthlings announcing the soon arrival of something that will, as scriptural teaching indicates, catch them by complete surprise. Right? Remember 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. It comes suddenly, like sudden destruction upon a woman in labor. Right? 2 Peter 3.10. It comes like a thief in the night. Well, now, according to the pre-wrath view, you have these men announcing, that is the unregenerate unbelievers, that the wrath of God is going to come because it doesn't come to the seventh seal in their mind. Well, now all of a sudden they're announcing something that's supposed to come upon the world suddenly and like a thief in the night. It doesn't wash. Okay? Therefore, I think we can safely say that the wrath of God is certainly there by the sixth seal. And I would say prior to the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. Let me show you some more evidence. The pre-wrath view is no wrath again until the seventh seal. So remember, what they're saying is the wrath of God starts here, the seventh seal, and extends outward. Okay? So there is no wrath of God until then. What I'm showing you is that, yes, there has to be wrath by the sixth seal, and actually it starts at the beginning at the first seal. Okay? So again, the sixth seal, Revelation 6.17, their wrath has come and who is able to stand. Now remember, this phrase here, is able. Again, it has to do with those who are currently able to stand. In other words, John isn't saying who will be able to stand. Again, I've already pointed that out. Who will be able to stand when the wrath of God comes? He's saying who can currently stand. Why? 
because the wrath of God is present here at the sixth seal. The term dunamai is the present, middle, passive, indicative. Now notice what Thomas says again in his commentary. He says the rapid sequence of all these events could not escape public notice. In other words, what happened in the beginning all the way to the sixth seal, they were public knowledge. People are seeing that on the face of the earth. But then he goes on to say, but the light of their true explanation does not dawn upon human consciousness until the severe phenomenon of the sixth seal arrive. In other words, friends, the wrath of God is prevalent and present since the first seal, but it's at the sixth seal that it finally dawns on the unregenerate men and women of the earth that this is the wrath of God. So remember, this is a statement from the unregenerate. The wrath of God has been prevalent the whole time, and that's why they're using the aorist indicative. They finally realize this has been the wrath of God. That's how we should understand it. Now let me give you further evidence that we even have the wrath of God, remember, by the fourth seal. And this is a little bit of review. Remember, the fourth seal talks about the sword, famine, the pestilence, and the wild beasts. Remember that? And I talked about how that was built right off of Ezekiel 14.21. Well, in Ezekiel 14.19, in the Old Testament, God specifically declares when he pours his sword, his famine, his pestilence, and the beasts out on people, that's his wrath. Okay? Well, why is it now no longer his wrath? And the only conclusion I can come to is because it doesn't fit someone's scheme. Okay? If it was the wrath in the Old Testament, it certainly is the wrath again. And what's more, we see the same concept, the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, according to Ezekiel 5.17, is, is God's wrath upon Jerusalem. And the same thing is in, found in verse 13. So in other words, in Ezekiel 14.19-21, in Ezekiel 5.13-17, we know that when you have sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, that's the wrath of God. And especially because John builds the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, heavily off off of the Old Testament. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and in those 404 verses, there are 278, again, allusions to the Old Testament. So the, the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, is built from the Old Testament. Okay? So certainly, friends, we have wrath by the fourth seal. And again, I think it extends back to the first seal. The whole 70th week, friends, is really the wrath of God. Now, the next section I want to talk about, I'm going to show you a connection, is uh, the Great Tribulation Martyrs. Okay? Uh, remember we had talked earlier in our discussion this, um, in this course about Revelation chapter 7. The debate is, are those martyrs, or those Christians, I should say, in Revelation chapter 7, are they being raptured? or are they being martyred? Okay, if we can prove that these are martyrs, then again we can disprove the pre-wrath theory because they have to believe that this is in fact the rapture. And I think this will help us all understand this passage better. Let me read to you Revelation 7, 13 through 14, where John writes, he says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they, and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Notice this phrase up here that the elder says, He answered saying. What's interesting when you read this in its entire context, there's been no question. There's no question that's asked. And yet it says, He answered saying. Well, who's he answering? Well, what's going on here is John is using a conversation in a Semitic style, which allows for information. So in other words, there's this conversation that the elders having with John. And the whole purpose of it is a literary device so that they can convey information. So the, the elder says, well, who are these? And John says, well, Lord, you know. 
And he says, well, I'll tell you who they are. And so they're having this conversation, and then you and I are a part of it. You and I are kind of like listening in on the conversation. And so it's a literary device to convey meaning. And so, for instance, the same thing is used. This literary device is discovered by this man named Charles in his, uh, his Revelation commentary. It's used in John 1.26 and also John 12.23. So this is something that John likes to use. So we're privileged to this conversation. I'll explain to you why that's important in a minute. Now, the debate that we're going to have is about this participle. It's a present tense participle, the ones who come. Okay, now here's what the debate is. Notice it says in the New American Standard, these are the ones who come. And it seems to indicate that they're coming out as a group in a point of time. But notice, this is a present tense participle, which actually would be better rendered, these are the ones who are coming. They're in the process of coming out. Now, why is that important? Well, because if they're in the process of coming out, it certainly can't be the rapture because it's an ongoing thing. And if it's an ongoing thing, it can't be a one-time event like the rapture. These are people who are continuously being killed during the tribulation, therefore it's continuing. They're continually, as they're killed, they come out of the great tribulation. Okay? So the debate is, how should we interpret this present tense participle? Now let me give you a couple rules. The first rule is that participles usually follow head verbs. And by the way, I had a, um, in your, oh no, you guys have the worksheet from, I had a little bit of a typo, but I think you've got the correct version. Uh, participles usually follow head verbs. Now what is a head verb? Well, this would be probably the head verb. In other words, the verb that comes prior to this participle is that they have come. And this is in the aorist. And so normally, grammatically, what we would do is we would say, well, even though this is in the present tense, it's a participle, it should follow the head verb, which is aorist. And so it talks about something coming at a point in time in the past. It's that sort of idea. Are you with me? Okay. So in order to break that rule, we should have good reason. And I think we do. The reason why is because, again, we're in this conversation, this Semitic-style conversation, where it's used as a literary device. Where ha- who, how does he say it? Where have they come from? He's just talking about, where have these guys come from? And then John says, well, Lord, you know. And then he breaks into saying, these are the ones who are coming. Why? Because they're continuously being killed. So the point is, because we're in this literary device of this conversation in this Semitic style, I think that this question in this whole conversation, remember, there was no question even asked. It's set up for us to listen into. And so I think there's a very good reason to divorce this participle from this head verb. And so some have suggested, because of that link, that the head verb is actually have washed. And again, that's aorist. It's in the past. But what is have washed? So in other words, they would say, well, the participle has to fit this verb having to do with the washing of the robes. That is aorist and happened in the past. But what's the problem with that? When did the people... What, first of all, what does it mean to have your robe washed? Well, it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And certainly, these people came to faith in Jesus Christ prior to their martyrdom because if, in fact, they weren't believers in Jesus Christ, they wouldn't have been here. Are you with me? They wouldn't have been martyrs at all. And so the point is, is that doesn't wash, no pun intended, because the washing here is in the past. It has to do with when they came to faith in Jesus Christ. But the reference, the time point, the time reference here has to do with something that's ongoing. Why? Because they're being killed. And so my point is, is there's good reason to reject either this head verb or this head verb and translate this as a present tense participle. And so therefore it should be rendered, these are the ones coming. 
And why that's significant, again, is because that means they're continuously coming. It's not a one-time event like the rapture. They're continuously coming out of the Great Tribulation. And notice the phrase, out of the Great Tribulation. Remember last week we talked about that preposition, ek? And we talked, I gave you examples of how it's used on the outside. It's an outside position of ek with tereo, keep from. Here is a perfect example, Revelation 7.14, of the inside position of ek. It normally functions in from the midst of to the outside. In other words, these people are being taken out of the Great Tribulation. It's not that they came after it was over. They're coming out of the midst of it. Okay, well, if this is talking about the rapture, it would be after the tribulation is over, not from the midst of it. The midst of it means it's ongoing and they're being killed. So clearly, friends, this whole passage isn't about the rapture. It's about the martyrdom of the saints. And again, therefore, the pre-wrath view is dead because if this is about tribulation martyrs, then their major uh, revelation rapture passage is kaput. Next, I'm going to just show you another connection. And again, another literary connection. I'm almost done here. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 5. This is about when these men are going to be raised from the dead. It says, Then I saw thrones, and they who sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. The question we have to answer is, who are the they? (laughs) If that's even a good, valid question. Who is the they here that is sitting on the thrones? And the debate is, here's the problem. Notice this, the people up here. Could it be possible that the they that are on the thrones are those who would not worship the beast? Now, most scholars say the they here is too far removed from those down here who did not worship the beast, and so therefore they are wrestle with who are the ones on the throne. Are you with me? In other words, who is it in context that are actually sitting on the thrones? Well, here's something very interesting that I found from a man named David Ahn in his book in Revelation. He discovered another literary device. Okay, So on page 1085 of volume 2 of his Revelation commentary, he said, John, and in fact, he often depicts that people are seated before he describes them. Okay, so in other words, John uses a literary device where people are positioned and seated prior to him describing who they are. Okay, and so for instance, we see that done of God in Revelation 4.2, of the elders in Revelation 4. It's done of God again in Revelation 20.11. I forget who it is in Revelation 14.14. 14. But nonetheless, he uses this literary device where people are seated. John describes them as being seated somewhere. Then he describes later who they are. Well, that's exactly what we see here in Revelation 24 through 5. In other words, they're seated, and then he describes who they are. Well, they're the ones who didn't worship the beast. Now, why is that significant? Because we know those who are being raised from the dead here are the believers who have been, in fact, martyred and didn't worship the beast during the Great Tribulation. So those who are being raised here aren't all believers, It's not all believers that are being seated on the throne. It is those who, in fact, were living and were martyred during the Great Tribulation. So let me show you. Oh, the other thing is, notice the phrase, those who had not worshipped the beast. Again, it proves these are tribulation saints that are raised. Now let me show you a literary connection here. Revelation 6, 9, remember the fifth seal? I saw underneath the altar the souls of those slain because of the word of God and because of the witness which they bore. Well, that's exactly, almost verbatim, the words that are used in Revelation 24. Look at all the color coding that I did. By the way, it took me a lot of time. 
It says, And I saw the souls of those beheaded because of their witness to Jesus and because of the word of God. So what's interesting is, remember, those who are uh, here who are being beheaded, they're the ones who are actually being raised from the dead in Revelation 20, verse 4. Now, why is that a problem to the pre-wrath rapture? Well, remember, this, what that you're seeing in Revelation 6, 9, that's occurring at the fifth seal. And if those are the ones who are being raised from the dead at the end of the 70th week, which Revelation 20, verse 4, certainly that, that certainly is when that happens, well, then the, the point is, we have to ask the question, why are they not being raised here? If the pre-wrath rapture is here, where all Christians are raised from the dead, why, why are those in Revelation 6, 9 not raised here? Because remember, they're, they're dying here. They're, they're, under, they're under the altar at the fifth seal. And yet there's a rapture that occurs here, yet they're not part of that because they end up being raised here at the end, according to Revelation 20, verse 4. And in fact, Robert Van Campen in the pre-wrath view says, I don't know why. I don't know why. Well, the pre-trib position can answer that question because we say, well, the, the rapture happened prior to the 70th week, right? And then all those who are dying in here, they, they become believers. That is, all those who are the elect, they become believers and they die during the 70th week. And that's why God waits to raise them from the dead here. The other problem it raises, I think, for the post-trib view is this. The post-tribbers are saying that the rapture happens here and therefore the resurrection. Yet who are those who are raised from the dead according to Revelation 24? Well, it's just those who are in the great tribulation because it's those who have been beheaded because of the witness of Jesus Christ and because of the word of God. It's a direct link back to those in the fifth seal, that is those and, and they're indicative of those who have perished during the Great Tribulation. So the point is, is the post-trib position's in trouble because the only people that are being raised from the dead are those who are, in fact, dying during the Great, the great Tribulation. Okay? But yet, the rapture, we know, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, incorporates every single believer for all time. Okay? So I think that's problematic for them as well. So let me give you a summary. I've thrown a lot at you. I think I have six or seven points here. Number one. What we've learned tonight is that Revelation is primarily chronological or progressive in its seals, trumpets, and bowls. Remember, the the seals, trumpets, and bowls comprise the the primary structure of the Revelation. Then you have interludes. Revelation maintains interludes and areas of recapitulation in between the judgments in order to supply additional information. Three, evidence suggests that the seventh bowl judgment extends to the new creation. This fits with the understanding that the broad day of the Lord extends through to the millennium. So they, they jive. The seventh bowl, understanding that it extends outward to Revelation 22.5, fits very nicely with 2 Peter 3.10, because the broad day of the Lord extends that far. Four, the cry of the martyrs at the fifth seal finds its ultimate answer in the judgment that comes in the seven bowls, right? Because the seventh trumpet, that's when it's answered in Revelation 10.6, not at, at the seventh seal as the pre-wrath maintains. Number five, wrath begins at the beginning of the 70th week, not at the seventh seal as pre-wrath maintains. Six, the saints in Revelation 7.14 are martyrs, not raptured saints. And finally, number seven, the saints raised in Revelation 20, verse 4, are tribulation saints. And that, again, friends, creates problems for the post-trib viewpoint because why weren't all the saints raised there? Why is it just those rascals living during the 70th week? Okay, well, the pre-trib can answer that. Say, well, everybody else was raised prior to the 70th week. So you have two groups. you got those prior to the 70th week and you got those in the 70th week. We can account, but they can't. And then same for the pre-wrath. Why those martyrs in the fifth seal, why were they not raised at the rapture between the sixth and seventh seal? The pre-wrath can't answer that. 
but the pre-trib position can. And so again, friends, I hope seeing all these ties and these literary devices that the book of Revelation uses, I hope that has inspired and shown you how we should exegete and expose the scriptures and, and understand and gather our theology from what John has actually put into the word. So instead of taking a scheme and trying to fit everything into the scheme, what we do is we just take the structures and we look at the text and we try to make sense of the text and we just let the chips fall where they may. Okay? And so with that, I'll take your questions. Since Revelation 119 is past, present, and future, where yeah. does the rapture of the church take place? Yeah. Are you, are you literally asking me like when the... In, in the book of Revelation? Yeah, I don't think it's in the book of Revelation. I don't see... We... Yeah, but... Right. But what's interesting is it doesn't necessarily mean that it's inclusive of every single thing. And that's why some people say, well, the, the church isn't seen from chapters 4 all the way through 22. Now, I think that isn't necessarily a good argument. But the point is, is that doesn't mean that every single inclusive thing has to be pres- present there. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't. I don't see it in the book of Revelation. No. What I do see, and again, what is the book of Revelation primarily about? It's about the coming kingdom. And the kingdom in the resolution to the Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 9, which is about what? The 70th week. And the 70th week is about the coming of the kingdom to Israel, which you and I are a part of. But that is resolved at the end in Revelation 19.11 where Messiah comes. And so I, I, I see that is what it's referring to. So in God's providence, we do have references to the raptures and other passages like 1 Thessalonians 4.13-17 and you know John chapter 12 and so forth. Yeah, yeah Tom. Um, I believe that uh, John MacArthur actually believe, believes in the uh, a recapitulation view. Do you, uh, are you uh, aware of that? I'm not aware of that. I'm not sure how he views that, on that topic, or I, mean, I should say a message. And, and uh, it definitely seemed like he's following that kind of thinking. Yeah, and, and to be fair, you know, again, I agree with John MacArthur on 90% of things. That's a weak view. Now, that doesn't mean there's no recapitulation at all. Because there is in some of the interludes, for, for, for instance, in Revelation chapter 12, you have the talk about the woman pursued by the dragon, the woman with child with the dragon, that is Israel, who is pregnant with the, the Messiah, obviously. And that does recapitulate a whole bunch of time. So often in the interludes, you'll have periods of recapitulation where time, sometimes you go back in time, sometimes you're in the present time. But So there is some recapitulation. It's just that it's at the seams. It's not the core structure, uh, which is progressive through the seals, trumpets, and bowls. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah. Dick. I don't know about the the terming using the term recapitulation, so I'll put that aside. But yeah. I think MacArthur would say chapter one stands alone. Two and three are a portion. Okay. Four and five are separate. Six through eleven is the story. Uh, Twelve to fourteen is a separate view. Okay. 15 to 17 or 16 or is something separate, 16 to 19 is something separate, and then on to 22. Okay, sure. I mean, he breaks it up into all kinds of different things. Yeah. You're treating them as interludes, yeah. I think, yeah. and they probably are. Yeah. But, but he seems to break these out, change viewpoints and stuff like that. Okay, yeah. And, and by the way, thanks for pointing that out, Dick. Yeah, I'm, I'm just not aware of all of MacArthur's writings and so forth, but... Realize, too, when I'm using interludes, I'm using them very, fairly generically because, again, during the interlude, an interlude you can have 
You can have discussion that's recapitulating. In other words, it's going back in time. You can have it dealing with additional information that's present during the seal or trumpets. So again, the interludes, just think of it as a, a pause in the action and the, the narrator going back at the ranch, okay? Because it's, it's just taking you out of the progression and it's giving you additional information. That's what John seems to be doing. And again, you saw how you have six seals, you have an interlude. You have the seventh seal, you're in the throne room. Then you have six trumpets, an interlude. And then you have the seventh trumpet, you're in the, the throne room. And so there is, there is um, a structure to it, but those interludes, like you're pointing out, there's, that's where it gets more dicey because there's, some of them are proleptic. Some of them look forward, like in Revelation 11, uh, 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's prolept. So, yeah, that's probably what he's referring to, and that's where it takes a little bit more of a nuanced hand. Yeah, yeah Pat. I'd just like to make a, a general comment, having gone through this and yeah. looked at the detail of this and yeah. I've read a lot in the background too, that it seems to me that if the rapture was an event that happened in the middle, then we would have had more evidence of it in the book if it happened where it did. Yeah, very good point. And the fact that we don't is that you've either got to take the pre, pre-trib or you have to take a post-trib and then look at the, the evidence for that. But I think there's so much evidence for the chronology of it yeah. um, that we have that we would see more of that if it were in the middle. Well said, and I'll just let me make a comment on that. You know, from Revelation 6 onward, you're in the 70th week because remember the six seals in Revelation chapter 6 Jesus, his words in Matthew 24 correlate very closely. In fact, he says these are the beginning of birth pangs. And he's talking about famine and earthquakes and all those things that false Christ that are occurring in the first six seals. So really what you have, remember the end of Revelation chapter 3 is the end of the discussion to the, of the seven churches. Well, then in Revelation 4 and 5, you're in the throne room. And so you're right, it doesn't give... There's really no room to really get into the rapture. The, the idea is in Revelation 4 on, you really, and I, I know this has been kind of poo-pooed and laughed about, but I've seen some recent evidence that makes a stronger case by Paul Feinberg. From Revelation 4, you really are hard-pressed to talk about the church as an organized body in the book of Revelation. And um, we, we don't have time to talk about that, but I used to poo-poo and think that that was kind of a funny piece of evidence. And... Um, it's a little bit stronger than I thought now reading some of these other scholars. And the point is, is why is that the, the core of Revelation is about this 70th week and then what transpires into the eternal states. And again, why? Well, because that's what the day of the Lord focuses in on and therefore the culmination of the kingdom. So, yeah, I think that the book of Revelation isn't concerned and focused in on the rapture. It, it's really talking about things after that. Yeah, well said, yep. Yeah. Well, I know there was a lot I threw at you. Hopefully, this is stuff that you always have access to and you can always go back to and use it as a reference. Uh, um, Again, uh, friends, I would, um, just in closing, Robert Thomas has a commentary in the book of Revelation that has been very helpful to me. He's a man who writes, and I have a lot of respect for him because he makes good exegetical decisions. The name is Robert Thomas. It's a commentary from Moody on Revelation. It's two volumes, and I think he'd be very helpful for you 
um, as well. So, yeah, I'd highly recommend him. Thanks, everyone. And then next week we're going to be talking about individual eschatology.